Welcome to today's podcast, Global Citizen Life. And today we are very lucky to have Dan Nicholson on the show for us. Welcome, Dan. Thanks for having me on. And um, we were just chatting a little bit, but can you tell us a little bit about your background and your your journey towards becoming an entrepreneur? Well, I was sort of the uh, cliche kid growing up scheming on business ideas, mostly terrible business ideas, uh, and my parents kind of uh, reining me in. Actually, I had sort of a proud father moment today when my nine-year-old daughter was like, when am I allowed to like have a job or start a business? I'm like, Well, right now. <laughs> so roughly the same age I was. Of course, I was old enough. I'm old enough that uh, I was asking about like a paper route just to date myself. Like, Can I have a paper route? Of course, now that's not really a thing for kids to do but uh, very much been the kind of entrepreneur at heart kind of from, from as long as I can remember. And, uh, and then I went away from entrepreneurship for a while. Mm-hmm. I would argue about as far away as you can go. So I, I got a degree in accounting and a degree in information systems. And I thought, okay, accounting is kind of language of business, information systems, technology, like that's a great skill set. Uh, to be an entrepreneur and then I got nominated for and ultimately did a fellowship at the board that writes all the U.S. accounting standards and uh, ended up (laughs) accepting that and working on a very niche very specific accounting standard on uh, derivatives and hedging activities which I will not suffer (laughs) make you suffer through a detailed breakdown of what that is but that sort of put me down this career path I think many of us kind of go through where we start to have this conflict of what I want to be doing and what I think I should, in air quotes, be doing. I am trying to delete that word from my vocabulary. I, yes. I think it it's not a good word. I do that. There's that whole saying about uh, you need to stop shooting all over yourself. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Exactly. So I very much had to go through that process as well. So I. You know, had this experience and most people haven't heard of these boards, but it's the accounting equivalent of the Supreme Court would be kind of the closest kind of parallel. So it was a, if I wanted to continue down that path, uh, it's a huge kind of ex- career accelerator. Mm-hmm. And so I strung first person in my family to go to college and my parents never held that over me as any sort of responsibility they were they've always just been proud and supportive but I carry this sense of again what I should be doing so uh, I was basically a terrible employee for six years where I just kept going from this like you really shouldn't hire me uh because I'm gonna probably like be your best employee for the first 90 to 120 days and then I'm gonna get super bored and uh because I should just be self-employed or I want to be self-employed or I have to say it again, but I, I'm meant to be self-employed, mm-hmm. um, but you're going to hire me because my resume looks decent and, and uh, I've crafted a good narrative of why I'm leaving the previous job, but really don't hire me. <laughs> so I, I moved around in a bunch of different finance jobs. I worked for a big uh, global consulting firm, Deloitte, where my main client was Microsoft and really any 
institutions with a hundred billion or more in investable assets. And then I worked for Warren Buffett, that company. And then I worked for this guy, Steve Loudon, who's was uh, my mentor for a while. And he is still the CFO of Roku. So he took that company public. They did a bunch of stuff in finance, kept moving around. And then I realized about 15 years ago that I could just marry the two and that there was an opportunity to do something different in the CPA space. And that was really the, when I gave myself permission to move full-time into entrepreneurship and has, has really been no looking back since then. Excellent. And so when you moved into the entrepreneurship, what sort of things did you start doing? Were you still like having your own company within the CPA field or were you, you know, playing with different things or was there something very specific that you moved towards? Yeah, because I was uh, sort of still reckoning with all the stuff I have on the resume and the skill set. Mm -hmm. The first venture, and I still have it today, was a, what I call a non-conventional accounting firm. Mm -hmm. And really, if not the first, one of the first CPA firms in the U.S. to focus on tax planning. And that's something that big corporations have had access to with their CPAs. But there's a reason why small business owners consistently pay the highest average tax rate. And it's sort of a, a system behind why that happens. Um, I sort of lovingly refer to other CPAs as archaeologists. They just want to dig up the past. So they say this year and they're talking about last year. And mm -hmm. that's a problem because paying less in tax is like any other goal you might have. You have to be future focused and change your behavior. So that was really my uh, kind of best of both worlds where I've got the skill set to do it. And there was a, and still is a large market opportunity for that. Absolutely. Everybody is always, uh wanting to find ways to, to save money, whether it's cut spending, save taxes, um, especially as small business owners. Absolutely. Yeah. And so what, what have you found with all your knowledge and over the years that are some of the, the best ways and maybe also, or maybe they're the same, of some unknown ways for people to save with their taxes or their tax planning to move forward? So the first, uh, the first, step into really implementing this is understanding that the reason why you're paying the most in tax is because you're always looking in the past. So when you say this year's taxes, you're usually talking about last year. And just like growing your sales, having better relationships, being healthier, that's all future focused. Taxes is the same pattern, paradigm. And, uh, and so you need to move from having an archaeologist to having an architect. So I consider myself to be more of an architect. I'm going to take your goals and help you construct kind of the future. About uh, 600 to 800 tax provisions change or evolve in any given year. So it's a constantly changing thing, which means, again, you've got to be future focused. There's three categories of what one should look at. A category one is things that you already qualify for that someone didn't tell you about. Okay. Uh, category two, and I can get into more specifics if you want me to, but there's just things that uh, you're just missing. You qualify for them, no one told you about them. Okay. Category two would be small incremental adjustments to turn something that isn't a tax deduction into one. Um, and then the last is what I call home run strategies. These are things that could reduce your tax liability by up to 100%. 
And so you really need to be looking at those three to construct an overarching plan. Right. And I found too, a lot of people, they, they just think I have some deductions I can use. I send off my tax, like I have my bookkeeper do stuff. I send it off and I have to pay whatever rate that they're at, 20%, 30%, 40%. That's just the way it is. And, uh -huh. and then that's it. But I, and I always try to tell people, I'm like, there's many ways to save on taxes, whether it's as, as some of the things you said, finding things that you qualify for that you're unaware of. And sometimes it goes into total restructuring everything um, right. as a way to, to save. And, and a common thing that I hear too, it's like, well, because I live in, whether it's Canada, the United States or wherever they live, this is where I have to incorporate my company. And I often say, no, that's not true. And then, of course, thank you, TV and movies, that everything that's not is illegal. Uh -huh. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> You're, I mean, you hit on a, a bunch of good points there. So hopefully everyone was, uh, li listens to your advice. There's a lot of, so if we look at, one, there's a lot of just generalized information that's out there or misinformation and uh and then again, typically people are with a archaeologist CPA who makes them feel dumb or when they ask a question like, should I buy a vehicle with my business or my personal name? And they want just kind of like a yes or no answer. They get a three or four paragraph scroll with all the tax code references and they're more confused. Right. So they stay in this pattern. What I find interesting is that so small business owners on average 40 to 60%, sophisticated investors, big corporation, zero to 20. If you look at the average tax rate by all taxpayers by year for the last hundred years, and you put it on a graph, it's a straight line, which basically means the average tax rate has stayed the same. Even though we've had higher tax rates than we have now, lower tax rates than we have now. And the point is basically those who have a lot at stake they constantly modify what they're doing uh, to keep their tax liability down. Mm -hmm. uh, and that results in them paying roughly the same year after year. And it's just, again, small business owner doesn't know that. They just think to your point, they just have to pay it. And, and I think though too, as, as you said earlier, I didn't realize it was so many. And I mean, I know that tax laws and everything, they, they change every year and there's modifications and adjustments and things like that. And I do feel that a lot of people get overwhelmed by it. Like even the thought of 600 things change in one year, like that's crazy. Um, or the thought of, I'm just too busy. I'll have somebody do it for me. And then they go to their friend's accountant, one that they've seen advertised on TV, or they say, well, mine does pretty good. I don't pay too much. Yeah. I hear those same aside, I sigh because, and I learned this when uh, I met my wife 17 years ago, and I'm dating myself a little bit. And we were in our mid twenties. Her dad had been preparing her return. It was basically like a, a couple W-2s. Mm -hmm. She was in a, a job where she had a lot of commissions at that point. And I was like, I'll, I'll, I'll prepare your return. Like, you don't have to have your dad do it anymore. And what happened was she owed money. And you might imagine what her first reaction was. It's like, 
are you sure you know what you're doing? Maybe I should have my dad look at it. <laughs> and it, it was actually a really helpful moment to realize that even the people that love you, if they owe money, they're not sure if you did a good job. Uh-huh. So this is how people evaluate their tax person. Is it rough? Did I get money back? Or is it roughly what I was expecting? If so, they did a good job. If I owe, or it's more than what I expected, they probably don't know what they're doing. And unfortunately, that's not actually a relevant data point to necessarily indicate whether or not they're doing a good job. Right. But it's like going to a mechanic or going to the doctor where you're just trusting. I'm just trusting that they seem like they're really knowledgeable. Almost always when I talk to someone, they're like, CPA seems like a, they seem like a good person. Like uh, they seem knowledgeable. Okay. What, what strategies have they updated you on in the last year? What is, what, well, none. Okay. Well, there's been like hundreds of changes. There's at least a couple that I think are relevant to you. Okay. Uh, they're probably not keeping up on it. Right. And it's, I mean, it's, it's tough because I get as, as business owners, there's a lot of things to keep up on, but taxes is, is a big expense for, for every company. And so it's one of those things where finding the right person to, to be doing your taxes or, or to, to structure everything is key because in the long run, that saves so much. So you can still be doing the same amount of work that you're doing this year and actually make more money next year and potentially even more the following year with with the right structure or the right deductions or knowing um, what's in place. So that's, in my opinion, it's one of the most important people to have on your team is somebody who knows the tax structure and policies and and are on top of things on a yearly basis who really specialize in that field. Yeah. Well, we're so wired for more. Dopamine is the molecule of more. So we're so wired to chase after higher revenue months, sales, like just in our DNA, it's it's part of us. And so if I told somebody... How much would you be willing to spend to generate two hundred fifty thousand in additional revenue? I'd probably spend fifty grand, maybe more than that. Mm-hmm. But if I said, uh, "Well, your margins—you got twenty percent margins," mm-hmm. so uh, if I could find you fifty thousand in tax savings, that would be the equivalent of two hundred fifty thousand in revenue. And they're going to be willing to pay significantly less for that tax advice or not even explore it at all because you don't get the same dopamine hit. Right. You get when more sales come in, you see those, you get those yeah, more sales. The numbers are getting better. The numbers are getting bigger. Yeah. Right. Uh, you don't get an alert when you just saved money. Like, the money was yeah, already there, there's account. no alert you saved on tax no alert great <laughs> but i just recovered the equivalent of two hundred fifty thousand. I, I have this whole uh recover reallocate process uh-huh. i take people through i had one person um just last week who recovered uh seventy thousand dollars in expenses from things that they're like automated recurring 
software as a service stuff that they haven't been using in years, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, okay, well, that's for your business, that's like 400,000 in additional revenue. But the beauty of this is that because it's not actually additional revenue, you don't have any extra effort involved. You don't have more clients you have to tend to, refund risks. Uh, so you have less effort and you have less risk. So it's always, to me, the first step is recover resources and then look at adding more. Right. Yeah, I was um, talking with somebody just the other day and they said too that every, I believe it was every quarter, um, they go through all the different software and things that they're using because lots of times we'll, we either start with a free trial and I'm guilty of it. And then I'm like, oh, I'll try it out and we'll see. And I might try it for a couple of days or something. Right? Oh, I've got it for two weeks. I'll get to it. And then I don't. And now I'm paying for it and it's coming out. Or, you know, I've used it for a while. And then for some reason, I just don't use it anymore, but I'm still paying for it. And so they said what they do is about every quarter they go through and it's all the software that they're using. What are they really using? And what new things are out there that may be combining some of the things that they're using. And that's just a simple way that they cut back and, and reduce their costs and expenses by just doing that with reviewing software. Yeah, I call it the two Oreo principle. Okay. And uh, it's, it's sort of an anecdote on compound, the power of compound interest. So a couple of years ago, my wife and I moved um, or our whole family, we moved to a new house. And in the previous house, she had a snack cabinet that's like, I don't want to know where you put your snacks because she's very good at just like one little piece here or there. And I'm like, I'm just going to eat all of that. Like once I know where those snacks are, I'm pretty much like eating them until they're, so like, I don't want to know where they are. Right. Moved to a new house, I know where the snack cabinet is. And so end like six months later or nine months later, I'm reflecting on what, how did I gain 10 pounds? And it's like, I've been working out roughly the same. Mm -hmm. What happened? And I started looking at it. Like, I think I've been eating the equivalent of like two extra Oreos a day. Okay. So I did the math because that's my personality. I looked at the calories. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. If you eat two double stuffed Oreos every day for a year. It's like 13 pounds in additional calories. Wow. And that's the two Oreo principle is these seemingly small things add up to something significant, right? Trying to lose 13 pounds is, is, takes a lot of effort and consistency. Mm -hmm. We have all these little Oreos on our financials, these little, autumn, these little software as a service things that renew Mm -hmm. And we look at it, we see it on our bank statement, maybe, and it's like $70. And we go, I don't have the time for that right now. Mm -hmm. But if we went $70 times 12, that's $840. And I got 20% margin. So that's like 4,000 in revenue. Would I be willing to spend 10 minutes to generate $4,000 in revenue? Yes. Yes. So units of measure, how we think about things, mm -hmm. it's called the mental accounting bias, significantly impacts our decision uh, making and our behavior, how we bucket things. So I call it two Oreo because it's sort of fun. I try to- it, it is, and everybody can kind of relate because we think, oh, if I had, if I have two Oreos, it's kind of my, my let's just say it's a nighttime snack or something like, mm -hmm. had a good day, I have my two Oreos. And really, what's two Oreos? It's, it's two nothing. Oreos. It's two Oreos. 
but you're right. If you every day, it adds up, adds up, and and it's, it becomes a lot. So like your friend, I do recommend uh, once a quarter, I call it the investor frame, look through your ex, uh, expenses, mm-hmm. label them, are they core or not? So core would be my business has to use this to operate. We need to have a point of sale system. We need to have, uh, if it's not core, why are we doing it? Well, typically we assume that it was going to have some sort of ROI. It's going to save us time, money, et cetera. So is there any evidence to support that there's an ROI? If no, consider canceling it. Another thing that you can do, this is my approach, is whenever I do one of those trials, I use a virtual card. So Capital One is an example. You can set up virtual cards by vendor. There's a little extension you can add to your browser and it automatically create a virtual card. And within that virtual card, you can set an expiration date. So, Uh, or you can make it. So I set it so that it's going to expire before the the free trial ends. Uh And uh, it's always easier to opt back in than to opt out of something. So in this case, having to opt out, it's like, oh, I gotta like find the website and make, and then the back of our mind, we're like, they're probably going to make me contact support. I'm probably going to have to call a 1-800 number. I don't have the time for that. I don't want to opt out. I'll get to it later. Right. But and it's we, only whatever, whatever. I'll deal with it later. I have more important things to do, make more money doing something else. Exactly. But if we create what's called a preventative control, I, preventing them from charging my card. I'm now going to get an alert that allows me to opt in. They're not going to alert me usually to the fact that they're billing me and I'm not. Like the gym doesn't call you and say like, hey, uh, you've been paying us for four years. We haven't seen you come in. They're like, man, I hope this person doesn't realize that. uh, They've been paying for years and not showing us for four years and then come in, right? So creating these controls where it automatically forces you to have to opt in to continue Mm -hmm. is a significantly less cognitive burden than having to opt out. No, no, that's that's great. And I never would have thought of of doing that. Um, and, I, and I know that there's many that offer that that virtual card, um, but it's not something I ever considered. So that's a, a great tip for our listeners um, to definitely. It's a little extra effort, but then if you weigh it against the, again, cognitive burden of, Am I going to want to have to think about this in seven days and remember it? I actually put it in my calendar. Like I, I will like yeah. as soon as, and that's crazy. A virtual card be easier. It's like if I'm trying something, I'll put it in my calendar, um, and it'll be like potentially cancel, whatever it may be. Um, so then I don't forget because otherwise I do. Like it, it happens. And I, like most people, right? We forget. We get busy, and then all of a sudden we paid for it, and it's like, oh, okay, I'll cancel it before the next payment. Yeah. And then sometimes it's just repeat, repeat, repeat. So I call this the the, um, the parenting frame. So I have a book called Reading the Game, and it's my operating system for how to engineer luck. And I have these four commandments and these 12 principles. And one of the, the principles, I call it the parenting frame, and frame like a pair of glasses you've put on. So I want mm-hmm. this like perspective. Okay. Um, and as a parent... We want to prevent bad things from happening to our kids, right? I don't mm-hmm. know if you're a parent, but I am. Yeah. Uh, I want to prevent 
as many bad things from happening to my kids as possible. And mm -hmm. Of course, we can't be everywhere, and and but I'd rather prevent them from watching some rated R movie that I would deem inappropriate than finding out after the fact, right? Right. Um, so preventative is more important than detective. Detective is be found out after the fact. Mm -hmm. So in my business or in decisions, whenever I'm going into something new, part of engineering luck, when I call it, say rigging the game, say, how do I engineer the outcome I want? I go into it from the front end. How do I prevent bad things from happening? Actually, I mentioned the, the previous life when I was doing derivatives and, and hedging stuff. Hedging is actually oftentimes, it's about trying to guarantee the outcome that you want, or at least eliminating downside. Because if I eliminate all the downside, then I'm only left with upside. Right. So whenever I go into something new, I'm like, how do I prevent something bad? How do I eliminate the bad stuff? So that's how you come up with things like the, the uh, credit card. That's not a particularly novel idea, but the frame of mind is, let me prevent this bad thing from happening later, which is one, having to remember to do it, two, having to sign in, not having the time. Once they've charged the card, then it's too late. Right. Once Adobe automatic renews, like I'm in it for a year. They got <laughs> That's this. right. So uh, as many preventative controls that you can put in place is a like, keystone habit to really engineering luck. Excellent. Yeah, that's it's it definitely makes sense. And as you said, a little bit more effort on on the beginning side saves a lot more in the long run. Uh, one of the examples that comes to mind for me in particular is is around um, budgeting. Okay. Most people hate a budget. Mm -hmm. And the problem with a budget is that it's not preventative is detective. In other words, it doesn't prevent you from overspending. It only tells you after the fact. Uh, and in fact, it requires you to go in and log a bunch of stuff. And then you get the, then you find out, oh, I overspent. And um, I was thinking about this in the context of my marriage. I didn't, I don't, a lot of times there's a, in a marriage, there's the saver and the spender. Right. A little bit cliche here because it's not mm -hmm. always the case, but there's a saver and a spender. Mm -hmm. People will generally expect I'm going to be the saver. And I am um, okay. <laughs> like more of the saver. But I also don't want to be the person who's telling my spouse what they can do. Like I'm not I'm not my wife's dad, nor do I want it. That's not particularly attractive. No. Right. She doesn't want to be my mom. That's also not particularly attractive. <laughs> uh um, and so setting up this system where you're telling your spouse whether or not, or they have to seek approval creates this dynamic of like, you can end up feeling like a parent right. or they feel like a child because they have to ask for permission. Mm -hmm. like, this is not why we got married. And aren't we adults? Like, aren't we adults? Like, permission. Why? Yeah. Why am I asking you for permission to buy something? Right. I should, why, why am I doing that? So what we did is a is is, is uh, we just have um, a series of a few different accounts mm -hmm. on 
kids, uh, travel, and uh, paychecks just automatically go into those accounts. And it creates a bit of a preventative control because if you're overspending, the card gets declined. Right. So it's she's got her fun account. <laughs> I got my fun account, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what she buys. Uh, I see Amazon packages that show up. <laughs> um, and sometimes she shows me some stuff. It's like, whatever you want, because uh, kind of yours whatever's to in your account. Right. Same with the kids, et cetera. So it, mm -hmm. it's, it's a high level budget distributed across you know, six different accounts. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's preventative in that you can't overspend because you go negative. And so the only time we need to talk about it is, is not so much approving the whatever they're buying, but hey, uh, I'm gonna need some extra money. Are you okay with it? Rather than I already overspent, I'm sorry. Right. Right. And that's and some people can do that in, even with their their business. They can have it set up where the income comes in and they have separate accounts. And one could be there the mar for their marketing and for staff or however they want to set it up. So that would be a great way as well as setting it up to be, oh, well, if my marketing I'm spending so much per month, okay, this is my limit. And and that's where where I'm at to keep it within that planned budget amount. Right. Exactly. So that's that's a great way to to keep on top of things. Again, a little bit of of organizing to set it up, but once it's set up, then it's it's great. And then again, they can decide, you know, if something new comes up or something big, okay, if I'm going to do that, where where do I get those extra funds from? Where do I spend a little bit less on mm -hmm. Um, and make that that priority decision, especially if they have a partnership. If there's more than just the one person in the business, it's really important to decide, you know, what percentage of our of our income and the money that we're bringing in do we spend on these various things to help prevent any type of disagreement and resentment in the future because one partner spent so much on on something and the other one thought it was too much. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right that there is a little bit extra kind of front end uh, involvement in figuring out these couple of different accounts and kind of setting that up. And there's a quote that I love from Virginia Satir that says, people prefer the certainty of misery over the misery of uncertainty. And so when you don't put in a little bit of this front end work, you're like, well, I guess I'm just going to fight with my spouse all the time about money because I don't want to spend an hour to figure out how we could solve this problem right so you kind of have to gut check and go am i just choosing misery because i don't want the uncertainty of figuring out something different mm -hmm. and that's okay if but you are choosing in that certain situation you're choosing to live a life of being a victim right and that will necessarily prevent you from doing something in my estimation that would be extraordinary Absolutely. I, I completely agree. And I, I believe like everything is a bit of a give and take. So it's either, you know, you're, you're giving a little bit more time on the front end to get stuff back, but in, in the end or the long term, it's going to be easier. You're going to save more time. You're going to save more headache. You're going to save more arguments. You're going to save more freedom. 
or you don't do that little extra on the front and then you're going to have all that extra. So everything is that bit of a give and take and you have to decide consciously, which one do I want? Do I want a little bit more time up front and then not have as many worries and not have to have as many concerns or will I go with the flow and then know that I'm going to be angry, upset, frustrated, maybe um, I almost said checks will bounce, but we don't use checks anymore. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, but we're like both dating ourselves in this conversation. Exactly. Right. <laughs> checks. Yeah. Um, you know, those payments get declined, you know, and then there's that frustration. So it's, it is interesting how humans think and do the things that we do when, when we know, like, and we know that, but still lots of times we just, still don't make the the best decisions for us the sooner we all embrace that we're all biased humans the the sooner we get to making better decisions mm-hmm. so a lot of humanity now is going well I, you're biased but i'm not biased <laughs> like a lot of that social media like actually the neuroscience says that both of us are biased right and so the longer that you fight it I give one specific example: New Year's resolutions. Oh yeah. Earlier, back in Jan, you know, back in January, six, seven months ago, I was asking my clients. I have a uh, certification program called the Certified Certainty Advisors, twenty-week program. I was talking to the that current cohort, and I was asking them what their what their New Year's resolutions were, and it was all some version of be more disciplined. They didn't state it that way, but it was all some version of that. Mm -hmm. And I go back to that sort of hedging. How do I remove all the downside? This is like technical language that turns people off of it. But how do I, how do I get rid of the bad stuff? Mm -hmm. So, but we think about more, again, dopamine, molecule, more. So we're going like, how can I be more disciplined? And the opposite of that would be, how can I put myself in a position where I don't need more discipline? How can I be less impulsive? Right. So that I don't even need discipline. And that way of thinking, such a paradigm paradigm shift, because in reality, let's go back to COVID. Pre-COVID, folks were like, you know what I want more than anything is more time with my kids. Right. And COVID happened, and it's like... When can we get these kids back in school? (laughs) Sometimes be careful what you wish for. (laughs) What's that? Sometimes we need to be careful what we wish for. Right. And the realization was, is it that I want more time with my kids or do I want to be more present with my kids? Mm -hmm. And I think for many of us, we realized, I want to be more present. Well, if I get home and I don't have any discipline left because... Again, there's a bunch of research on like how much we have a finite amount of willpower. And so if we've designed a life a system so that by the end of the day, we're out of discipline, then we're going to get home and we're not going to be present because we're going to be succumbing to the looking at our cell phones and all these other things. And then you go like, well, I'm just going to set a goal of like, I'll just be more present. And then it never works. And we're on this, then we're on this carousel of shame and guilt about not being more present because we're not actually asking the right question to begin with. How can I not need to be more disciplined Mm -hmm. so that I can achieve whatever goal that I want? Mm -hmm. 
So a lot of these sort of like preventative, what I call hedging downside, engineering luck, is just taking the question and then flipping it on its side and like, well, what would be the opposite of that? And now let me solve for that. No, that's that's great. And and a lot of things, as you said, though, too, it's it's asking the right question. Right. So so being more present or for some, maybe it isn't like that more quality time instead of just time. Um, I've been at many. I go to many seminars and stuff. And a lot of them say, you know, they always have people. One of the things is they want to make more money. And it's like, great, I'll give you five dollars. You're going to be happy now. Right. You mm -hmm. have more money. It's only yeah. five. Everyone's like, well, what am I going to do with that? It's it's not enough. And so it's like, well, is it really the money or what does the money get you? And then mm -hmm. so sometimes we we think it's money and yes, money to a certain degree. But why? If we had, you know, so much in the bank, if it's just sitting there and we can't spend it, it's in a trust account or something for us, we can't spend it. We're not going to be happy. So it's it's asking those right questions. And then it's the why behind those questions. Mm -hmm. I call it a solvable problem. This is uh, something I break down in detail in my book too, which is mm -hmm. uh, we oftentimes, we have an idea of what we want in our life. Mm -hmm. uh, we So we have this outcome or we've done a vision board, but we don't know where we're at currently in, in terms, and so we don't really know the resources that are necessary to get to that final destination. It's kind of like, I know I want to get to Disneyland, but if I didn't know where I was at currently on the map and I didn't know how I was going to travel to get there, I'd have no way to map out a plan. Right. I know the final outcome. So, so many of us have this idea, we have this version of what we like, want our life to be like, but it's not a solvable problem because we haven't put dates and dollar values to those objectives. And so we don't really know what the resources are. In fact, we may find that if we just continue down the exact path that we're on, that we're going to get to the final destination at the time that we prefer, that timeline. Um, but because we don't know that, we always default to assuming that more is the answer. Right. What I do for folks is show them, I help them define their solvable problem. And then I show them, okay, the first step is recover and reallocate resources. Mm -hmm. So saving money in tax, those two Oreos that we have in our business, uh, uh, removing all these decisions that we've made that don't have a demonstrated ROI. Let's undo those. Okay, how much do we recover resources? Oh, you know what? If we took all that money and just reallocated it to now, you don't have to do any more to fund your goal. Or uh, often... That's actually the case. I'll give you an okay. example of a client that we did this with. Um, or we go, you know what? I need to make 30 grand more a month and to live the life that I want within five years. And now we know a number. And now we can actually go, what's the least amount of effort, least amount of risk to make that happen? A specific example, if I have time, uh, I have a client, uh, Laurel Portier. She's uh, fairly well known for a $7 a month uh, coaching program that she has in the ad space okay. and uh, of course everyone has told her you're never going to make any money on a seven dollar a month program um and that's absolutely not true but a few years ago she said you know my number one priority number one goal is that 
in five years, I want to get a, this beach house. Okay. She's like, I think I can do it in five years. And so then we went through the process, step one, recover and reallocate. Mm -hmm. And she closed on that beach house 45 days later. Wow. That's the power of actually just getting clear on what you want and not assuming that the only pathway is just to make more money. By the wow. time we recovered the tax savings and the other things in her business, she already had the research. She already had the money. She bought the house. And now people constantly tell her, oh, you need a higher ticket offer. You need a this, you need that. She's like, but I'm living the life that I wanted. Exactly. Isn't that the point? Mm -hmm. And that's, but, that's when we really need to stop listening to other people. So true. It's very triggering for other people when they see you living the life that you want. Mm -hmm. I have found the fastest way to upset someone is it's like, they present you with a great business opportunity that, and then you go like, that's great, but um, yeah, I don't, that's going to get me further away from my goals right now. Like, I don't, my number one priority is not more money. Right. Like, what do you mean? You're allowed to do that? And oftentimes I get so offended by it. Like, yeah, you're allowed to do that too. Yeah. But more I mean, money is, money is not the only currency. No. And to me, it's, it's not, not the most important uh, time. Time is our most valuable asset. Um, you know, there, there's things that we can always do to make money. There's things that we can do to lose money, but it doesn't matter how much money we have. We don't get more time whenever that time is up and we don't know when it is because it's always different for everybody. That, that's it. There, there, it doesn't matter how much money you have. Your, your time is up. Right. So true. Um, but, you know, obviously there's a certain amount of money that makes life easier. When we don't have to worry about it and we can afford a home, clothing, food, shelter, all of those things. So I, I don't want to say that, you know, money's not important because to a certain degree, it obviously is. But I, I just don't feel like it's the most important thing. And everybody has their own priorities of what's the most important thing to them. Yeah, I, I, I like the concept of relative priority in the sense that today your number one priority might be money because you've got basic needs that you need to, to meet. Mm -hmm. But that might be five times more important than, than, than having more time. Mm -hmm. um, and so understanding that difference in priority is important because if you like, well, having more money is five times more important than more time right now. And having more time is five times more important than insert some other objective. And you right. find that that third objective is actually not that important mm -hmm. in a relative sense. Uh, but then that's going to change. And so uh, you fill that objective. You know, I'm meeting my basic needs. Now time might be the most important and it might be five times more important than making more. And right. so going through that exercise, I think it's helpful to do it quarterly. I actually try and do it weekly, which is looking at the different currencies and go, okay, what is the relative priority of each of these? So that then I can focus on a couple main things. Mm -hmm. And not get caught up in the busy work, the anxiety work. Right. And it's it's important too. And and all and obviously it's knowing too, as you said, different as we go through different phases of our life, things, our priorities change as as well. And and so it's never, you know, it's never just one thing that's that stays the most important all the time. And and it can change. And as you said, whether it's 
you know, you're, you review things, certain things weekly. Um, some people may be quarterly. Sometimes it's annually. It's like this year, this is my most important priority or this quarter for my business, this is the most important. But for me personally, these things as well. And so those those things always change. Um, but it's it's knowing where we're at, where we want to go and what needs to be done to get there and kind of push aside or be okay with saying no to things. And sometimes it's not always just no, it's just not right now. Mm -hmm. This thing that I can do or this project or this opportunity, sure, maybe it sounds great and it will be for somebody, but maybe just right now, it's not the right thing for me because I have these goals. And then it's, it's how important are those goals that we have? So true, yeah. Excellent. Well, Dan, you had mentioned um, your book. Can you again repeat the, the name of your book and where people can find it? Yeah, it's called Rigging the Game. And mm -hmm. it's about how to achieve financial, what I call financial certainty mm -hmm. uh, with less effort, less risk. Uh, the easiest way to find that is just to go to riggingamazon.com. Okay. And that will redirect to the Amazon page. And I'll, we'll, we'll put a link in, in the show notes as well below. And if people wanted to find you and to work with you, uh, where would be some of the best places that they can find you? Yeah, because I'm not particularly creative, uh, consistency here, riggingthegame.com, you'll find all the links to my uh, book, podcast, um, my CPA firm, Certain to You, all the other businesses that I'm involved in, you can find off uh, Rigging the Game. Perfect. Well, that that makes it easy, and uh, it makes it easy for me because it's only one one or two links to <laughs> to put in there for the for the book and for your website. So I just want to say thank you very much for your time today. I know the listeners got a lot of valuable information, and hopefully they they grab your book, and um, some of them may be in touch with you. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me on. It was fun. <laughs>